Marie's son, Bill, was at his mother's birthday party at her retirement home in Denver. Did you say I was 104? I did. Oh. That's pretty old, isn't it? It is pretty old. Marie was born in the Ludlow Mine Camp near Trinidad, and she's seen a lot of history. She survived the Ludlow Massacre when she was just three months old. Nearly two dozen people, including miners' wives and children, were killed in an attack by the Colorado National Guard and Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. It was all over a worker strike at the camp and pulled Marie's family apart. <laughs> Hello and welcome to American Moments. This is Matt. And this is Adam. And today we're here to talk to you about, well, what started as... I'm just pissed off. This was this is one of those episodes. For those of you, I mean, podcasting is a great medium because Matt and I aren't very good looking. But what you can't see right now <laughs> is I'm sitting here in a Che Guevara shirt with a with a fedora on, just just pissed off, right? Because the guy who who, who voted for Trump. No, nope, just kidding. <laughs> I, but but you knew me in college. I was Absolutely. not a socialist. But this show is turning me into a socialist, and I don't like it. Well, yeah, and, and I mean this, and we're kind of keeping you in suspense here. What the topic is, but. The American moment is the Ludlow Massacre, but it ended up being more about the Coalfield Wars and really worker rights, which, yeah. is, which seems to be a common theme in all <laughs> yeah, of our podcasts Exactly. Lately. People are going to think we're just downright communists. I know. This one actually came as a recommendation from one of our awesome listeners, Carrie Landon, who happened to be driving down to New Mexico and saw a sign for the Ludlow Monument on the way down there. And I was like, what is this? And I was ashamed to say I had never heard of this. It's amazing. I mean, we're from Colorado. You know, I know I had a year of Colorado history growing up here, and I never knew this was an event that not only was a big event in Colorado history, but also helped affect change for workers' rights across the nation. Yeah, I mean, there's the things like the Triangle shirt fire in New York City that that are horrible, you know, things like that. We didn't know about those. I mean, in the you know, we've hit the jungle, yeah. which, is, which is the classic one you hear about workers' rights. Yeah, but this was about a, I mean, for lack of a better term, the event was sparked by the Ludlow Massacre, but it was part of something called the Colorado Coalfield Wars that happened, started in really 1912 and wrapped in uh, 1914. Yep. What was the Colorado Coalfield War? It was a major labor uprising that occurred in, as Adam said, from 1912 to 1914. The high point and the really American moment we're going to be talking about today was the Ludlow Massacre, which, which happened in 1914. Before we get to that, I think it's important to kind of understand the history of coal mining, specifically in Colorado, we're going to talk about, and why it was so important. So if we go back to the founding of Colorado. So Colorado was a territory that really got its start from mining, although it wasn't coal mining, it was gold mining, the Pikes Peak Rush. Colorado really traces its European roots, we should say, to 1850 when when some prospectors were on their way to California um, for the California Gold Rush, and they were going through the area that is now known as Colorado. 
came to the confluence of the South Platte and the Clear Creek River, dipped their pan in the river like you do, mm-hmm. right? And um, found gold. They found $5 worth of gold, which back then, I don't know how much that's worth, but a heck of a lot. $5 billion. I suppose if you put a pan in a river right now and came out with $5, I'd be excited. I'd be happy. That's good for a big match. I'm sure sure. it was very exciting then. So anyway, that kicked off the Pikes Peak Gold Rush. Well, which uh, interestingly enough, that that was recently just part of the United States because the Mexican-American War, the Mexican Session had just wrapped up. Yep, that's a good point. And the California Gold Rush started. And literally, I think two weeks after we signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, they found gold in California, and all the, all the the expansion and and uh, all the all the prospecting started happening. So that's and we were what was it? We weren't called Colorado at that point. We were no, actually, that we were known well nine years later. So that happened in 1850. Right. Right. So nine years later, we were called the Provisional Territory of Jefferson. I kind of like that. I know. We could be yeah. Jefferson right now instead yeah. of Colorado. Yeah. But, you know, at that point, nine years later, there were lots of gold miners here, and silver miners for that matter. You know, you hear the 49ers that were in Cal- California, mm-hmm. and that 49 was the year, 1849, that the gold rush started in California. Well, they were known as 59ers here in in Colorado, which was the year of the founding of the Provisional Territory of Jefferson. So the, you're telling me that the Broncos could be the 59ers? We could be the 59ers. And it's part of the... Ten up on the 49ers, <laughs> right? right? Well, hey. <laughs> anyway, that name did not stick, <laughs> as we know, and it officially became the Territory of Colorado in 1861. So during this time, as I mentioned, there was lots of gold and silver mining, but shortly after that, coal mining started to take off here in Colorado. There's a lot of... Um, what we call kind of valleys, I guess, on the mountainsides here, where coal is prominent and easy to get to. So mm-hmm. it became very attractive for coal miners. Especially coke coal, which is really kind of a, a side-by-side in- industrial cohabitation with coal was the steel industry. So going back to right. Johnstown a little bit, they had taken the Bessemer process and perfected steel. Well, that was in 1889, where it was at its boom. So right after that, they... A lot of the, the good steel companies would have a coal company that would help them produce steel. And right, right in Trinidad, Colorado, which is where the Ludlow mine was, they had a really good coke coal uh, mine there. Absolutely. So, yeah. You know, and that was the main source of, of the economy in, in the, the Colorado Territory, um, mining, whether gold, silver, but, but primarily coal. So the, the state was actually founded in 1876. The Centennial State, if you didn't know, that was August mm-hmm. 1st, 1876. Coal mining really took off. At its peak, in 1910, there were roughly 16,000 coal miners in Colorado alone, yeah. which is a huge number. I don't know the population of Colorado at that point, but... It was more than 16,000. It was, more than, it was maybe 18,000 or 1850, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a large... It was. A, it was a large amount. But, you know, with that came a lot more companies trying to get more coal out of the ground. And so the mines went deeper and deeper and became more dangerous. And coal miners risked their lives at a higher rate here in Colorado. In fact, Colorado had one of the highest death rates in the country. Mm-hmm. It was 7.055 people per thousand coal miners that died. Per year. Per year. Yeah. And the average... Um, 
across the nation was three. So it was significantly higher here in Colorado. And to put that in perspective, I mean, when you look at that first glance, that doesn't sound like a really big number because it's a percentage of a thousand. But you realize that's per year and that's per thousand workers. Right. Out of the 16,000 workers here, that means that someone was dying every day through coal mining in, in Colorado. Yep. That's a, so great that's a big deal. So that was part of a, a miner's conscience was they would have someone who would die pretty much always. Well, absolutely. You know, and it led it led to many early strikes in Colorado. I mean, you know, we're we're obviously we're going to talk about some specific strikes here, but there were many before the Ludlow massacre. Um, you know, there were there was one strike in Leadville that became so violent that the governor had to declare martial law to stop the the strike from happening. As a result of this, the coal miners were really looking to find some leverage for safety and security in their job. And so they started to form unions, you know, kind of local regional unions, um, which the purpose for that was to band together to create safety and give them a little bit of leverage against coal companies. But in Colorado, I think all of the coal mines were owned by four different companies. So they were very large corporations. Um, We'll talk about the largest one um, in a minute here, but the coal miners really grouped together. In, an, in 1890, the United Mine Workers of America was formed, and it was basically a joining of two other larger, maybe medium-sized unions, and then some smaller unions to try to lever to get leverage against some of these larger coal companies. The union was initially established with three goals in mind: to develop mine safety to improve mine workers' independence from the mine owners, and to provide miners with collective bargaining power. Now, I want to talk about independence from mine owners a little bit here because as we talk about the massacre here, I want to set the stage for this. Um, The way mines really ran back then were you were almost owned by the mine. Like, you would come to these areas, Colorado, which was a rugged area, nothing really around. You'd live in in the the mine town, so what they called the company town. Coal Town really is almost an instruction ground for exploitation. Mine workers, they can see it very directly and their families see it very directly. They take all the risks, they bring out that coal and it's producing wealth for people who don't live there. The coal towns were almost always unincorporated. There were no elected officials no independent police forces. Owners hired private detective agencies to watch over their workforce. Company towns were also untethered from the free market competition owners usually championed. Operators often paid workers in company currency called script. And so it was that mine that owned that town, provided the buildings, they provided the store that you could do credit against what, mm-hmm. what you earned. You know, they provided the school if you had kids there. You were really at the mercy of these mine companies. And this wasn't unique to coal. Uh, because no, I remember no, no. the Pullman strike um, in, uh, I think it was 1877, yeah. you know, they had a company town. They, and, and, you know, you, you didn't earn dollars. You earned scrip. So you earned, that was redeemable at company stores. Right. You could only read in the library that, that they provided. <laughs> you know, Cambria Iron Company and Johnstown, same deal. You know, they had, a lot of these guys had company towns, but it was just a way of controlling their, their employees. Right. And I mean, the coal miners knew it, and they were at the mercy of the coal company. So um, these unions came together to try to help to give them some leverage. In fact, their preamble, if I can read it to you, was really interesting. It was as follows. We have founded the United Mine Workers of America for the purpose of 
educating all mine workers in America to realize the necessity of unity of our action and purpose in demanding and securing by lawful means the just fruits of our toil. And so they had 11 points. That was kind of their main founding. And I'm not going to read all 11, but all of them were really focused on safety, limiting work days. You know, that was a big thing, work, limiting work days to eight hours, and also ending child labor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, little kids can get into those tiny tunnels in in mines. Yeah. It's that, crazy. Well, I mean, women worked all the time. Uh, children yeah. worked all the time. And that was that's something that's going to come up. But uh, children and women were very much on the front lines of this, mm-hmm. this, this event. And, and this union, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about them, obviously, in the massacre. And then we'll talk about follow-up. But, you know, this union actually exists today still. Really? Yep. There's still 35,000 members. They're coal miners, which is really limited to West Virginia. And then open coal mines in Wyoming. Okay. Wow. Did not know that. Yeah. So, and and, and the, these mines did not. I mean, they they had their enemies, and you you've heard about the rob, the robber barons, and anyone who knows anything about big business and mm. and antitrust wars knows the name Rockefeller for Standard Oil. Yep. John D. Rockefeller, King of Standard Oil, vilified as a ruthless predator, as evil incarnate. He had created an industrial empire and a personal fortune on a scale the world had never known. In the drama of the Rockefellers, John D. Jr. was cast in an almost impossible role. In his quest for redemption and respectability, John D. Jr. would push his family to the pinnacle of American power. You may not have heard of Standard Oil because Standard Oil is now Chevron, uh, a bunch of other different oil companies because they were trust busted. They're still pretty much. Chevron. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but but they. Says so, a guy who works for an oil company. And then uh, so John Rockefeller founded Standard Oil, just became became one of the robber barons. Yep. And just really reaped a ton of profits. He had a son uh, by the name of John Rockefeller Jr. Unique. Yes, very unique. Uh, and obviously, as I was mentioning before. These guys wanted to get into as many verticals and as much control of their supply process as possible. Colorado Fuel and Iron was having some labor peace issues back in the early 1900s, 1902, and the uh, and the owners just wanted out. So John Rockefeller Sr. <laughs> scooped it up for basically probably like a 50% discount. The guys just wanted yep. out because there was labor labor unrest as is. So, yeah, I mean, again, setting the stage here, like Colorado is a dangerous place mm-hmm. for a coal miner, and as a result, coal miners are angry and striking violently still. Yeah, yeah. You know, nothing crazy, but we have seen some violent strikes. Yeah. And then, then uh, John Rockefeller Sr. decides to give, as a birthday present, the Colorado <laughs> Fuel and Iron Mine J.R. Jr. to, to J.R. Jr. <laughs> in 1903. Yep. So J.R. Jr., he never once visited the mine. He just, no. he, he was, I mean, it, you couldn't paint a better David and Goliath story. because yeah. I mean, he was a, I don't want to say he's a rec- recluse, but he did not enjoy the company of people. He didn't like meeting new people. No. He liked his... He was more Wall Street, not Main Street. Yes. Put it that yes, way. Yeah. And, and, and that's no joke. He seriously sat in, in his offices high in, in a mm-hmm. tower in, in New York and, and looked at these, at this mine operation as a bottom line. When I think of him, I know it's 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 a different time, 
But I do think of The Great Gatsby, of him just hanging out, <laughs> having a cigarette out of a long stick, you know, with his top With his hat. martini. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Just counting his money. Got the monopoly. Counting man. his dad's money. Yeah, counting his... So the biggest, the biggest expense these coal mines have is the labor. So they're constantly trying to squeeze the labor. Everything from the company houses, you know, regardless of whether you had a family of four or or you were just a married couple, you've got the same size house. Right. And when I say house, I really mean shack. And just constantly looking to to put uh, put pressure on the bottom line. So the Rockefellers also, I mean, they they got pretty devious. So they would hire, I mean, now that, so they had kind of an ongoing labor dispute the day they bought the mine. So what they would do is they would go to all these multi-language newspapers across the country and they had a 24 different Not ethnic groups. Not even across the country, across North America, like they'd go to yeah. Mexico and Canada mm-hmm. too. And, and they wanted a bunch of people who could not speak the same language so that they could yeah. not organize. So you have a bunch of workers who are, are kind of striking in, in Colorado at the time that, that the Rockefellers take ownership. And so they basically just decide that we're going to, we're, we're going to get the most diverse and potentially uncooperative labor force we possibly can so we can just roll over these guys. Absolutely, and I think it's important. I mean, it's so devious, right? It, it is. So, so like I was saying, they they really did the best they could to to put together a labor force that really just would not be able to organize. That they thought would not be able couldn't to even work. communicate. They couldn't even communicate with each other. Yeah. And then, so you also have the dynamic of, of these towns where we we mentioned how controlled they were, but they kind of be, had. Did you ever see the? the Pictures of the concentration camps we had in, huh. in in World War II, where it's just like a lot of barbed wire fences and things like that. Is this where they guard kept, towers? Where they this, kept the Japanese? Yeah, that's what kind of these villages kind of looked like. Because a lot of these mines were in remote areas, not near towns, so everything was company provided. There's one way in and out of the town, and you weren't allowed to leave freely. They, they'd have guard towers, they'd have lights, the whole nine yards. So it kind of felt like uh, you know a military encampment. Yeah. The way these guys were paid was per, I think it was per ton of coal that they actually produced. Right. So today when you go, when you're, when you work in a coal mine, you, there's a whole bunch of things. There's different workers. There's, there's firemen, there's, there's coal workers, but there's also people who add to the safety of the mine. You know, people who are, uh, you know, moving the carts, you know, building, propping up the supports. Cause as you go in deeper in the mine, mm-hmm. the more pressure that was called dead work. So as a coal miner, you were only paid. So you'd bring your, your cart up to the top. And they would they would weigh it, and you only got paid for what you produced. And dead work is work that you need to do. I mean, it's primarily focused on safety, mm-hmm. but you're not getting paid for that work. So it also encourages unsafe environments mm-hmm. because the sooner you get that done, all these workers want to get through it as fast as they can so they can get back to mining for coal and making money because they're paid by the pound that they, they mine. So they would, they would toil in the mine all day, and they would, they would come up, and present their cart to a, a guy named a weight checkman. Mm-hmm. And he was employed by the company. By the coal company. Yeah. So his job was, as, as I mentioned, to check the weight of the coal that they're bringing up. But he would also look for... Oh, that that one looks like there's rot. There's two rocks in there, so we're not going to chart. We're not going to give you the amount for a full ton. Right. Um, and since they worked for the company, they would typically round down the amounts, mm-hmm. and the employees felt like they were really getting the shaft. They were getting the shaft. Yeah, yeah, they were. They were getting the mine shaft. They had forced overtime. Yeah, and you had a family. Maybe you had a ten-year-old that your your ten-year-old was going to the mine also. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and now maybe you have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old and you don't have any other kids. 
So now both of them are in the mine and your wife is in the mine because she can't just sit around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So these things are kind of happening. So labor peace was obviously an issue here. And and the way it's important to talk about a little bit about how strikes kind of come together and and uh you know in this case what happened was 90% of the of the workers union decided they wanted to strike so they called a strike. The the first stage of a strike is a strike is called and and then the sheriff gets called mm-hmm. and he goes and he goes down and this is where most strikes get resolved. Is he, he goes down to to talk with the the union leaders. Yeah. And surprisingly, this, this is someone that everyone knows. You know, they, they share a town. They've elected him because it's a it's a public position. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's within a week typically. You know, they they air their grievances. There's the pressure of not mining any coal. So you know, they they kind of handle that and yeah. and that pressure and then the sheriff kind of mediating, kind of helps things out. After that, it gets really nasty. Okay, and again, that this that that interaction besides the profit that is being lost by the company is free of charge because it's a sheriff. Mm-hmm. So if we're not getting through that stage, mm-hmm. you you hire your own cops. Have you heard of the Pinkertons? Yeah, the Pinkertons were famous in the Pullman strike. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, basically, I mean, let's. I'm not. I'm trying to be nice, but just hired thugs. Oh yeah, that that's. You don't yeah. have to be nice. Yeah. That's exactly what they were. And again, the sheriff. And that was the, that was the typical profile of the yes. people they hired. Uh, yeah. Well, in, in this case, so the Pullman strike was the Pinkerton detectives out of out of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. These guys were. Uh, this was an outfit called the Baldwin Felts, and these guys had the no ba- Baldwin Felts detective. Oh yeah, see. detectives. Yes, they They're were detectives. They were unearthing. Yes. Their their point was they would come in and intimidate. Rockefeller Jr. realizes he has to dig into his own pocket. Mm-hmm. You can't just to hire two of these guys because you have 13,000 coal miners, right? So at hundreds, these guys are just hired mercenaries. They're not from the area. Mm-hmm. They have no loyalty. There's no, hey, that's Uncle Jeb, no. you know, that, that I know this person. I have no problem cracking their skull. And at this point in history, it's kind of crazy out here. It's the it's the Wild West. We are a state now, but there are not a lot of laws that are enforced. So these guys really have free reign to do whatever they want to intimidate. Yeah. Um, so they had some strike demands. And today they sound fairly reasonable, but... It's amazing that this is radical back then. Yeah. It just shows you how... Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to go through each one because I think they're really important, actually. Mm -hmm. So the first was recognition of the union as a bargaining agent. So basically meaning that the company recognizes the union as a representation of the workers. And what was happening a lot was the workers would organize, but there was no workers' right to this point like there was in the 1930s where the, where the workers right. had the right to organize. Companies it, could just they could just ignore the union. And, I mean, if you've listened to our other podcasts, and if you haven't, you should listen. The, to jungle, the jungle. That happened after this. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which we talk about workers' rights there, too. My, my communist friend Adam talks about <laughs> worker rights. The second demand of the strike was... Uh, changing the compensation rate for coal. So basically, instead of getting paid out at 2,200 pounds, you get paid out at 2,000 pounds. So it's whenever it's you a, hit It's a 10% pay bump. Adam, you mentioned this briefly, but this basically brings the level down to when you start to make extra money. And that level at 2,200 was really unattainable. So this mm-hmm. gives them that chance. If they work hard and they get 2,200, they get bonus money. Um, the third demand was in the enforcement of an eight-hour workday. Now, this did not exist in America at the time, and especially this l- class of worker didn't really have these rights. Like, 
like you had mentioned previously, they were working long 15, 18, 20-hour shifts. Um, so that was the third demand. The fourth demand was payment for dead work. So we talked about this, but this is anything that is not directly um, mining. So that includes laying track, handling impurities, timbering, putting up safety um, arches, supports, things like yeah, that. Yeah, the timber supports, yeah. yeah. So the fourth is the weight checkmen, which again, Adam talked about, but those are the people that weigh the coal at the end of the day, um, would be elected by the worker. And they were doing that in order to keep the company weightmen honest. So I think the company probably still had theirs, but then there was a union elected mm -hmm. person. Yeah. Um, next was the right to use any store and to choose their boarding house and doctors. So not forcing them to live in the company housing, not forcing them to use the company store, not forcing them to see the company doctor. And this is radical because you're basically saying we want to be paid in U.S. dollars. Yes. We don't want to be paid in company script. Right. And we want to – That's they, a fair point. Well, they had the company doctor and, again, kind of like the company Wayman – if they wanted some sort of compensation for a work-related injury, the doctor would say, nah, that's not a work-related injury. Right. Um, and then the last piece was really strict enforcement of the Colorado laws. So that's around uh, mine safety rules and really anything else to protect the worker that the state had established. So, you know, I said before it was kind of lawless out in the state there. But we were a state, and so we did have some laws. They just weren't enforced. A lot of historians look at this as, kind of a middle finger to the, the company because it, it was everyone knew that the laws were there but this yeah. was basically saying you are blatantly disregarding the laws so so those Absolutely. are the uh, those are the demands that the that the union had and as I'd mentioned previously uh, we were past our seven day period where you know the the sheriff could really yeah. help things so they brought in uh, they brought in the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Right. And this is when the, the, the company has to buy their own police force. And this is a very, very, very expensive proposition for the Rockefellers. Because mm -hmm. you're, you're basically, you have your own mercenary army yeah. of hundreds of people. And kind of the whole point mm -hmm. uh, of them being as rough as possible was to just agitate uh, against uh, the mine workers, yeah, to, to intimidate, to scare them, intimidate. But also the the reason, the real reason, is because of the money it's costing Rockefeller. Because the the sooner that they're able yeah. to start, because what happens, and I'll just go into a couple of examples of what they would do, they would set up sniper huts over the Ludlow town and just take bets about do you think i could snipe this guy from 500 yeah. yards away it's amazing they would put up <sighs> searchlights above the camp and try to keep the the miners up all night they would take machine guns and i and i cannot believe this i, I just this is just so bizarre to me and they would just indiscriminately fire mostly above but sometimes into the tented city which is now that these workers who had been evicted firing. yeah they, they, they had been evicted from their company yeah. homes yeah and now they're living in a tent city well, and that's worth noting, Adam. Like, when these workers went on strike, they were deliberately discriminated against. If you went on strike, you were moved out of your house, and you went into a tent, yeah. a tent city that was provided by the union. And and you know what they, they, these poor people had to do is they had to, and their tent. So you had your tent, and again, this is going into when this really starts. It's starting in the fall of of uh, 1913 mm -hmm. and winter's coming in Colorado and we know how brutal winters can be here yeah. and they're living in tents and then every night you have these guys shooting machine guns all around you and it got to the point where they had to dig in the frozen earth 
a cellar, for lack of a better term, which was basically just a hole in the middle of their tent, yeah. uh, in the floor of their tent. So when they heard the gunfire, they would all jump into it. And it was they were just so used to gunfire this, by this point that that's what they would do. Yeah. So... Amazing. So this is happening, and the reason that they're that they're trying to and the miners obviously they're seeing women and children getting shot at, and sometimes getting shot and killed, and the miners predictably arm themselves, which is exactly what they want. the The, the detective agency wants to get shot at. They want to get beat up because then what happens? You the, you then call the governor, which in this case they did, who yeah. at, at the time was Elias Emmons, I think. Elias. Yes. Elias Emmons. You don't see Emmons High School anywhere in Colorado. No, I, I think for good reason. Emmons Avenue? Yeah, no. Not so no, no, not, not so much. He's not celebrated. The Emmons Building for Worker Rights? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't seen that okay. one anywhere. I'll that look for either. it, though. If we find it, we should go <laughs> go check it out. I'm sure it's going to be a dark I'm place. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so what happens is... Uh, uh, Rockefeller can now say, my police force can't handle it, I'm calling the governor. And that does one really important thing for them, is that takes the burden of cost off of Colorado fuel yep. and iron and transfers it to the state. So, in October, that happens. And Governor Emmons tasks a gentleman by the name of John Chase to come in, and he's the, he's the head of the Colorado National Guard. So basically, if you're from the worker's perspective, mm-hmm. they think this is awesome. This guy gets a, a rock star... Uh, reception. People are cheering. They're singing for him because they think that he's there for them right. to protect. They, when you say these guys, you mean the coal, uh, the coal the workers. Yeah, yeah, they they think that John Chase is there to to protect them. Yeah. And what they didn't know is that John Chase had been on the company end of the Cripple Creek strike as well. So he was not for the workers. And what was the Cripple Creek strike? Just for those it was it was a it was a it was a kind of a. I forget the exact year, but it was it was a similar it was right strike. Yeah. yeah, I think it was ten years prior. But he he was on the front lines of that. So he he comes down. Uh, they dismiss the uh, detective agency. <laughs> oh, one thing I didn't mention about the the detective agency uh, that's a big miss is these guys had something that they called the death special. Oh yeah. So if it's not bad enough that they have machine guns on the hills that they're shooting uh, all over, they yeah. they have this basically armored wagon with a machine gun out of the back of it that they they just use to terrorize everybody. And so the workers from their perspective, they're like, "Great, we have a national guard, there's a semblance of order." And there's still because it's the national guard, you have Colorado residents in that group. So in Trinidad is is a pretty far away from the main population center of Denver, so not maybe not everyone knows, but there but there is the whole I'm shooting it against my own state, uh, my own fellow statesmen. You know, there's some loyalty there, so maybe they had one in five wash out that didn't want to be a part of this anymore. What happens a week after the Colorado National Guard gets there? <laughs> so what happens is is there's a, another mine, as you mentioned, this is a multi mine insurrection. Um, there's a, a mine called the Forbes Mine. And there's a National Guardsman that ends up dead. And it is blamed on one of the mine workers. Mm-hmm. So they use this to... So John Chase uses this opportunity to just go complete yeah. martial law. He imposes martial law, and he had no authority to do so. Only the governor can do that. He suspends habeas corpus, which he can't do. Only the federal government can do that. He starts arresting everybody. 400... And, and this is just Ludlow, right? So he... Right. Uh, well, not, not just Ludlow, but he... The, he arrested right. out of everybody 400 people the first day and then 500 people the second day. And this is a whole insurrection of 13,000 people, basically. Mm-hmm. 
And then, if that's not Amazing. bad enough, he starts torturing them to get information out of them. Yeah. I mean, this is crazy. This, Th- this is, is like, this is this is like medieval. It is medieval. It's crazy. And this is why I cannot believe I've never heard of this yeah. before. Me either. It's Maybe amazing. this is why we haven't heard of it. Yeah. Is because it's so dark. So, another... Have you heard of Mother Jones? Mm-mm. Do you know who she is? No. So, she was a uh, she, she was a labor activist from Cork, Ireland. Okay. Um, fascinating lady. She, deserve, she deserves her own podcast, I think. But she was a labor rights activist... And she had lost her business in the Chicago fire, lost her entire family mm. to yellow fever. But when she was at her at her darkest, mm-hmm. um, she got taken in by the Knights of Labor and started working with them and started becoming just a big advocate. And so one thing that the, the mine workers did really well that the other, that, that the Rockefellers didn't, is they realized that we need to win the public relations fight here. And they invited all these these reporters, and they invited Mother Jones to come and, and visit. And I long to see the day when labor will have the destination of the nation in her own hands, and that she will stand the united force and show the world what the workers can do. Smart. Yeah. So she came down, took the train from Denver down to Trinidad, and she shows up at camp, and Chase shows up and says, you're under arrest. I'm going to send you on the next train back to Denver, and you're never allowed to come back. <laughs> and he called her and later, or I think at the time, the most dangerous woman in America. And she, well, big shocker, she <laughs> came back. <laughs> she basically gave him, you know, both barrels yeah. and said, uh, <laughs> you're not going to tell me what to do. So <laughs> you're not going to tell me what to do. <laughs> like my terrible Irish accent there. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty horrible. That one was for the ladies. All right, wow. So she comes back. He, this is. You're a, not going <laughs> to tell me what to do. I didn't know she was a leprechaun. <laughs> So she's an eighty. This is an eighty-year-old woman getting off a train. Well, she's Irish. She, yeah, yeah, and she's full of piss and vinegar. Yeah, yeah she doesn't take it. So imagine the scene. She gets off the train at the at the Ludlow train station, gets roughed up the second she gets off the train. Thrown, an eighty-year-old thrown, woman thrown in shackles. Yeah, there's reporters everywhere. Yeah, okay, and then she's thrown in solitary confinement. She's not allowed to talk to anyone. She's not allowed to see a doctor, the company doctor, or or anyone's, and. This was horrible. I mean, because basically, like I said, the, the mine workers had invited all these reporters to come down. And all this stuff was being sent back to all the cities across the nation. And 10,000 demonstrators came from everywhere. Uh, I mean, not everywhere, but as far because travel wasn't as easy back then as it is today. Albuquerque, New Mexico, mm-hmm. Dallas, Texas. 10,000 people came right out in front of Chase's barracks. And basically said, you know, let her go, let her go, let her go. And it just turned into a PR debacle for the Rockefellers. Oh, yeah. But, you know, just a a note on Mother Jones was once denounced on the floor of the U.S. Senate as the grandmother of all agitators. That's a badass statement. Isn't it? I would love to be called that. I think she was like 75 when they... Oh, wow. Most dangerous woman in America. So this is this this is kind of setting the scene here. So and and what also happens is this is becoming very expensive for the state of Colorado. So what ends up happening is they half the National Guard has to go away. And but they need mm-hmm. to keep the force up. So what they do is end up hiring what supplementing with militiamen who 
were part of the detective agency. They've been there for five months already. Okay, <laughs> they they've been ad, they, 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 they've been dealing with these people. They're sick of it. Yeah, and uh, so you basically have half thugs, half National Guardsmen. Everyone's been there for five months. Everyone's pissed off. I mean, they probably thought it was a week, and now it's five months later. Yeah, so. yeah. And I'm sure the Rockefellers too. At this point, you know, I don't know the Rockefellers personally. That surprises me. But I would assume they're pretty upset and just want an end to this. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could have just given them a eight-hour workday and called it a day. But I guess we'll do this a hard way, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jared Jr. is having <laughs> yeah. his martini yeah, top Jared. hat. So things really come to a head. <laughs> now we're into April 1914. Right. And. There was Orthodox Easter happened, and they were celebrating it the day before on 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 the nineteenth, and so they they had uh, the day before the massacre. The day before the massacre, and you could tell you could tell that they had a baseball game between the guards and um and and the workers, and you know it was it was all fine. You know everyone was at was dressed in their best clothes. They were feasting, and dur- during the the game between the two you know the two teams the. I guess the miners won the game, and the guards told them, "Well, you have your fun today because we're going to have ours tomorrow." <laughs> so there was a feeling in the air that yeah. kind of it's it's coming. And another another interesting thing is another thing of, of control that another level of control that the company had that we didn't even talk about was religion. So mm. this is mostly the Rockefellers Protestant. You know, most of America was Protestant. Most of these these workers were Orthodox or. Catholic, but they only had a Protestant church to go to, right. so they were celebrating Orthodox Easter, which was just another point of contention, right, between the company and them. So let me a little bit of background. Um, the The leader of the union was a gentleman by the name of Louis Tikas, and if I mispronounce that, I really apologize. But he was he was a a Greek. He was born in Greece uh, and just a very charismatic guy. Very top of the morning <laughs> to you. Yeah, that's Irish. Oh. Yeah. Oh, uh, do, okay, do your Greek accent. <laughs> that was my Greek accent. Okay, all right, well, I can't help you there. <laughs> so so he, he's kind of leading a coalition of a bunch of Greeks who are veterans of the, the War of Independence against Turkey. The National Guardsmen looked at these guys and were yeah. like, we're scared to death of these guys. You know, these are burly, burly big guys. But Tikas was a very, very... You know, just charismatic guy. Everyone loved him. I think even yeah. even the guardsmen liked him. You know, because he was he's very good at keeping the peace. You mentioned Louis Tikas, but the other person of worth noting is John Lawson. He was the leader of District 15 of the United Mine Workers of America, and he was really kind of the leader of the strike, and would later become the leader of the not the massacre, but the retaliation mm-hmm. from the massacre. So what? Well, he'll come in because uh, unfortunately Tikus was not long for the world. That's true. Um, so the morning of of April twentieth, um, which is just a terrible day in Colorado for what four, other reason? Four twenty. Columbine was four twenty as well. Columbine. I think I think four twenty is often a bad. Is it? Was yeah. that also the date of the? Uh, not in Colorado, but the date that the um, Branch Dravidian yes. massacre. Yes, very much. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just a lot of bad stuff happens on that day. And I feel like the Unabomber had something on. That doesn't. It wouldn't surprise me. I, I think. I, I think we're just trying to throw a bunch of. My wife's birthday is April nineteenth. So the day of feasting was the nineteenth. Yes, so that's that's a good thing. Is the hangover from it? Yeah. The day of Michelle is the nineteenth. <laughs> but basically, the company had it. They wanted to provoke a confrontation at this point, and they sent three guards to free a quote unquote captive guardsman who apparently had been taken imprisoned in the camp. So they they had. 
the three guardsmen come and, and uh, Tikus comes out and he, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but let's go talk about it. They, he goes to Ludlow Station, which is about a half a mile away, and mm-hmm. notices that they're setting up a machine gun uh, on top of a hill right next to the camp. And it's one of those things where he just has this really weird feeling, you know, where, where, you, where you feel like there's something not right, and he kind of realizes he's getting duped. So he takes off and starts running back uh, to the camp, and he gets captured and shot in the back. So he gets murdered, and another guy gets, I mean, gets murdered. It's crazy. Gets, gets murdered in cold blood. So they start setting up the machine gun, and a train driver manages to see what's going on, and he right. pulls his train between the machine gun. And the machine gun isn't like this little portable thing we think of. I mean, back then, they're big they're, and heavy. They're big and they're unwieldy. They're like bazooka size. Basically, yeah. yeah. So it's not like they can just move it. Bazooka, they, maybe that's kind of old also. I'm yeah. old, you know, but... Yeah, very, very true. Yeah. So anyway. they ask him, the, the, the National Guardsman asks him, ask him to move the train. He says no, and it, this gives people time to escape mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise they were just going to open up this machine gun in, into into the yeah. I, I, it's crazy yeah so what what it's happens amazing. is they have time to escape some people get out get out of town they go into the hills uh, but some people go into their into their self-made ditches which is what they would do whenever they heard machine gun fire so what happens is they take the guardsmen take a bunch of kerosene to the tent city and light it on fire. This tent city that's not just the workers. Yeah. It's it's the families. Yeah, the families, children. It's everybody. Uh, everybody. And yeah. it burns to the ground. It's even more tragic is the fact that, depending on who you believe, um, it's generally believed that 19 to 22 people were killed that day. Okay, because you'll, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll get more into the insurrection. But out of that... 15 of them were women and children. The women and children who were hiding in the pit. And you hear, that was, that was, yeah. But innocent children that suffocated and and wives that suffocated and. Yeah. And and they basically were burned alive. Yep. And and then you can look at pictures online and it's just, it's so chilling. There's nothing left. Absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. left. And on the, on the guard side, and keep in mind, these, these are people who were hired to be a military purpose. So they were they were hired to be soldiers. Right. Three guardsmen died, and one militiaman who was one of the the detectives who was basically being employed by the National Guard, getting two paychecks. Right. They lost four men. So it's the perfect storm, and this is why I'm so surprised we've never heard anything about this because there's so much media on on site at the time, and this got out fast, really fast, and the the nation was absolutely outraged. Um. So you know. This was horrible, right? It was mm-hmm. it was a massacre. I mean, yeah. it really was. Massacre um, of innocence. Initially, guerrilla warfare breaks out in Colorado specifically on multiple sites across the state. So word gets out quickly, and as a result, other coal miners in other towns respond by arming themselves, you know, and attacking attacking not only the guardsmen from the company but the Colorado National Guard who was who was called in to help. So this went on for ten days. You know, there was in the, you know the Forbes mine that I was talking about earlier, where the the guardsman had been shot. Yeah, 
Well, they burned that whole thing to the ground. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was looting yeah. and burning. And yeah. I mean, but it was when organized. I say looting, it, it was, but it was looting of the company towns. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was anarchy. Fifty people were killed in those ten days after the the massacre itself. The only way it actually and well, it ended two ways. First of all, um, Woodrow Wilson, our president at the time, intervened and he sent in federal troops. One, one again, the, the the burdens, it really the, the steps really become an issue of the burdens. So the, the 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 Colorado governor has been funding this for 5 months. He has and now the Colorado guard is being I mean Colorado guardsmen are being attacked. Yeah. And killed. Yeah, and and the guardsmen are definitely more I get they're professional and a step up from like a local police. They are, but the coal miners are now angry oh, yeah. shooting anything that is not on their uh, yeah, side. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're a you're a guard for the company, or you're a medic for the Colorado, the Colorado uh, Guard. Yeah, and and they and so they brought in the cavalry from from Kansas, which is where the nearest barracks was. Right, and it continues. I mean, it's a war. The United uh, Mine Workers of America eventually did call off the strike. It wasn't till December, December 10th of that year. The reason they called it off was because they ran out of money. It wasn't because they they had accomplished anything. You know, at the end of the day. They really didn't accomplish a lot. There were more larger civic changes that happened, um, but really at the end, 400 guard. Or sorry, at the at the end of the day, 400 miners were arrested. 332 of them were indicted of murder. One of them was convicted. John Lawson, who we talked mm-hmm. about, who was kind of the leader of the union in the strike, was convicted of murder. But the Colorado Supreme Court turned it over. And and that's what kind of that's what kind of just makes it different than. A looting or an, or kind of an un, unorganized uprising is this turned into some people compare it, this is the biggest uprising in America yeah. that had happened since the Civil War yep um, and it was organized absolutely and you know and and I mean I just want to state this again four hundred of the miners were indicted and less than less than a dozen of the guardsmen were indicted and only one one was actually convicted. Um, and he was convicted in a mili- he was convicted in a military court, and he was basically lightly reprimanded, and that was it. it, it and then, as far as casualties and losses go, I mean, the, the, it's a wide range, but it, yeah. up to two hundred people lost their lives. Yeah, that's the number I generally yeah. hear. That includes the days after, not yeah. just the yeah the, the Colorado Cold Wars. Yeah, yeah, the Colorado Cold Wars. So you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> the mining companies did not accept. The terms of the union, they didn't recognize the union, but it really, but the event became such a media frenzy that it really did change, it really did change some labor laws. You know, initially Mother Jones, who Adam talked about previously, the treatment of Mother Jones, you know, the roughing up of her was something that was broadcast all over the nation. Obviously they didn't have television then, but it was in all the newspapers. And so as a result, John Jr., and John Rockefeller met with Mother Jones um, to talk about what happened and how they can make things better. And that, that meeting actually led to J.R. Jr. heading out to Colorado and meeting some of the people that work at his mine for the first time. And I, you know, I was so cynical when I heard about this. And part of it is deservedly cynical because what they did is they hired a PR firm afterwards to to, to try get themselves back in the good graces of the the population, yep. but I really got the sense that J.R. Jr. I I, I think <laughs> I think he was just clueless, but I think he was clueless. I think his dad was downright evil. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah, I, but but I got the feeling that J.R. Jr. I mean, in his public <laughs> statements afterwards, yeah, you kind 
I, I felt like this really rattled his cage and and changed his worldview a little bit. It could be. Uh, and again, there's there's not as many as much source material on this one as we've had in previous episodes, but I really got the feeling that this really did change him somewhat. You know, it's it's interesting. Like this is a terrible analogy. It's a dorky analogy. You go. With it's it. an aged analogy, right? Mm-hmm. It'll show my age. But one of my favorite movies, Braveheart. You know, I think of John Rockefeller as the the king. What was it, Edward the Second or something? And his his bumbling son, you know, mm-hmm. the one Longshanks. Who, yeah, yeah, Edward Longshanks was was J- John Rockefeller, and his bumbling son who liked to play the flute, you know, and his wife was sleeping with Braveheart. Yeah, is J.R. Junior. You know what? That really holds up. I mean, I think that's that's what I relate all of that 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 really powerful holds up. father silly son kind of relationships to 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 my Braveheart past. Yeah, you know? and then would would Tikas have been Braveheart then? <laughs> yeah. Yes. There you go. Yeah, all right. He, all right. Was, he, he was the sacrificial yeah, lamb. Yeah. Not 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 to make yeah. not to make light of it. I mean, we, we like to yeah. joke around, but this this one really kind of hit in the gut big time. It was. I mean, I'm just I'm amazed that I did not hear about it growing up too. Yeah. But anyway, so you know, Jr. Jr. Whether it affected him or not, he did come finally and meet the coal miners and show a little bit of recognition of their importance and also acknowledging them acknowledging them as his employee mm-hmm. now the other thing i should mention is after this jr jr you know he did meet with a um, someone named wl mckenzie king who was a labor relations expert at the time and they actually came up with a bunch of changes that they they wanted to enact they proposed and the union the union accepted at their minds couple of those things were paved roads to into and out of the mine. This was an interesting one. In creating, creating a recreational facility in the uh, company town so people had something to escape to. Um, representation on safety and working condition committees within the company, which was huge. They also prohibited discrimination against people in the union. So we talked about that. You know, if you striked and you were in the union, before this you could get kicked out of your home, and kicked mm-hmm. out of your job. This led to eight-hour workday legislation and also limitations on child workers. It's funny because all the all these factory strikes and the Pullman strike and and all these famous strikes that they I've seen it said and, and I don't know I'm not a labor relations expert but you are now I, I, no I'm just a communist comrade now. yeah <laughs> no it's been said that this event had the single most influence on creating those two things the child labor agreed yeah you know and and I just I find this so interesting just tying it to what we've done before because when we started the jungle we really thought we were going to be end up, end up focusing on that you know eight hour workday mm-hmm. worker rights and child labor laws mm-hmm. and we ended up realizing that the jungle was more around food safety yeah and this one really was more this one really drove those those worker right laws more than that than the jungle yeah absolutely absolutely yeah yeah so if you like your uh, your weekends and uh, your eight hour work days you can thank the the Ludlow Miners. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I want to say one thing, just a random... You say it. ...random thing here. We talk about the Rockefellers owning these mines, and really, these mines kind of destroyed the environment a little bit back then. On the Back then? Well, well What still, about the Los Animas two, three still, years ago? Uh, absolutely. The river turned blue. But I'm focusing... I mean, the river turned yellow. <laughs> the river was blue. 
<laughs> that water's so blue. <laughs> water's so blue. With it. No, um, damnation. The Rockefellers themselves were involved in in a lot of this. In not not just this, but other industrial things that are not good for the environment. If anybody has been to St. John, that was actually St. John. Uh, the island is an is an American territory, and two thirds of the island is a national park. Two thirds of the island is national park. Why is this starting to sound like Rocky Flats? Nelson Rockefeller, a, a relative of John. Rockefeller um, had a vacation home on St. John. Nelson Rockefeller, one of his descendants, was was actually a, a large, a big environmentalist. So when he died, not only did he give his lodge to the country of St. John, which is part of the U.S. Virgin Islands, but they owned two thirds of the land, and the agreement was he would give it to the U.S. Virgin Islands if they created a national park in two thirds of the island. That's awesome. So it's just, it's just. You know, we bag on the Rockefellers here, but people learn, live and learn and change. And well, and they were not the only ones either. No, they I mean, weren't. They, lived, that, that was, they that were was opportunists, and I mean, that's, yeah. You got to grade, you, you definitely Absolutely. do, in all seriousness, have to grade them on a curve, mm-hmm. right? And whatever, I, I think the important thing is just being grateful for what, the environment that we work in today compared to what... Uh, these people had to deal with back then uh-huh. is, ju- is just amazing. It is. And, and you can argue about the need for a union state or not, and that's a different, I, I feel like, kind of a different discussion. But back then, it's just amazing at how far we've come mm-hmm. from from where we were at that point. Have you been down to the Ludlow site? We're going to go soon. Yeah. I, nice. think, I, I think we need to go. So it yeah. actually got defaced in uh, 2005, I think. So it's a ghost town now, but they yeah. have a monument there. Yeah, right? yeah. And then, a small and, monument. And they got vandalized, and then, then they had to rebuild it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, who does that? Anyway, it's worth, it's worth checking out. For those of you who do not know Colorado geography, Ludlow is near the town of Trinidad, which is about as close to New Mexico as you can get without being in New Mexico. In, uh, in Colorado, so a lot of a lot of wide open spaces. So if you happen to be going that way, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Absolutely. Again, thanks to to Carrie for the yeah, great thanks, recommendation, Carrie. and uh, check out her podcast. She actually just started out one called Dame. It's about key moments in women's history. Yeah, the amount of research that these two have done is pretty amazing. I think they're going to be pissed that we are talking about Mother Jones and kind of stealing their fire. Yeah. But well, I'm sure they'll do one. Yeah. On Mother Jones in the future. Yeah. I think the fir- the first one they did was the birth control pill. Oh. Yeah, very good. I didn't know there was so much behind that, but but it was, it was really interesting. So, But uh, anyway, if you want to help us out, as always, go on Google Play or iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Tell your friends to download. Tell your friends to download. Uh, if you write us a review... Matt will come serve you breakfast in bed and and give or, and, and or, give, I, or I won't if you'd rather be not <laughs> or or he'll just give you an Instapot. <laughs> and uh, this was uh, sponsored by Standard Oil. <laughs> well, th- thanks for listening, everyone. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. It was early springtime and the strike was on. It drove us miners out of doors. Out from the houses that the company owned, we moved into tents up at Old Ludlow. I was worried bad about my children, soldiers guarding the railroad bridge. Every once in a while, a bullet would fly, kick up gravel under my feet. We were so afraid you'd kill our children 
dug us a cave that's seven foot deep, carried our young ones and a pregnant woman down inside the cave to sleep.